My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Again, with your, Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, and it's like therapy, you know. If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. Yeah. So, who are we talking about today, Matt? and worst ideas most major breakthroughs scientifically philosophically have been from totally fringe characters who were demonized initially and then you know they proved to change the world so you when you ban the fringe you have to be super careful because you're potentially contributing to like the the blockade of human evolution when you do that. So yeah, I just, I think we need to be thinking about this from much more of a mature perspective. I'm really glad that that Elon is talking about free speech. I hope that he follows through on it. And, but just the fact that the conversation is being had, he's talking about open source algorithms so that we can understand why we're seeing what we're seeing is something being shadow banned, you know? If, if it's open source, we're, you know, at least this, the the developers and computer scientists, are, they're going to go and inspect. As soon as Twitter's algos go open source, it's going to be so fascinating. 
My name's Bill. I'm the founder CEO at Minds, Minds.com, M-I-N-D-S.com. Sometimes people think it's mine, mine that you, <laughs> it's one of those funny words, but we, there, there is a form of mining that we do with crypto, which we, we can get into later. But anyway, so we're a open source social network focused on internet freedom. We're trying to elevate global dialogue through internet freedom. And you know, what that really in, includes is transparency, with the code, algorithms, privacy, having everything be end-to-end encrypted. We don't want access to people's private information or private conversations. That's just weird. I don't know why big tech (laughs) wants to do that. We have a whole reward system with crypto and we do revenue sharing with cash as well. And we are really trying to amplify creators voices as, as opposed to suppress. I think that with all of the, the sketchy algorithms these days, no one knows if they're being shadow banned, what's going on behind the scenes. And so, you know, our main feed is reverse chronological. We're never going to mess with your reach, your access to your own fans. And beyond that, we have tools to, to help you amplify. You can use tokens that you earn to boost your content more and yeah, we're, we're trying to decentralize our infrastructure, be censorship resistant. And yeah, I mean, I could keep going, but I, that's a good place to pause. Absolutely. Yeah. And like I said, you know, prior it's in congruence with every, with everything we've sort of set out to do with alt media United, we being myself and Alex Sakaris host of skeptical podcast, a podcast that has been around since 2007 so he's he's been in the the game a while and you know we set out with the intention of not becoming a podcast network because that's just sort of the old way of doing things but you know maybe we'll touch on that in the latter portion of our conversation tell us where this journey started for you obviously you're aware of, you know, the reasons why people, you know, would want to utilize a tool like minds to, you know, get out to their audience, sharing things that maybe aren't sanctioned by the powers that be in the form of Twitter, Facebook, and the rest. Uh, But where does this really start for you? Were you particularly, you know, an odd kid? Did you not fit in? Did you, you know, smoke some weed like myself? What, What really, you know, kicked off this journey for you? I mean, all of the above, Uh, I guess. I always had a gut feeling from the beginning that there needed to be a network that was just fully uncensored, at least as much as is possible within the law. I think that humanity craves that, even if there are, you know, a certain vocal group that it kind of resists it. It is, you know, I think that we have, it's our nature to want to be able to communicate as efficiently as possible. And, you know, the internet I, I realized early on is sort of split. You've got kind of these big tech networks that are, are super locked down and corporatized. And then you kind of have the open source internet, more the cypherpunk world where everything is open source encrypted you know people really care about speech and security and you know those are honestly the the principles that the internet was really created and in 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 the early stage of the internet things actually were quite decentralized 
Like a lot of people would host their own email servers. That was kind of like standard. You almost had to, because we didn't have these like web 2.0 monolithic silos where everybody was kind of using their service. Like people would, would run a server and that was not uncommon. I mean, the internet was way smaller, but than back then, so it wasn't like as if every family was hosting their own email server, but that's just sort of how it was set up from the beginning. And then we went to web two, which I'm not even saying was all bad. Like there's a lot of positive change that came through Twitter, Facebook, Google, but it's just become so corrupted. And, you know, even from the start, it was never like a full, they, none of them were ever fully free speech environments, though they were way better probably a decade ago than they are now. And so now what I think the world is realizing is that, you know, the user needs to be in control. The user needs sovereign system to, to protect themselves and their livelihoods, to be honest. I mean, the facts that you can just get banned on a whim for saying some random word on a social network and then, you know, your whole income, your whole audience is potentially down the drain. I mean, that's terrifying. That's not the world that we want to live in. So, I mean, yeah. And then in terms of the media aspects, like things are incredibly polarized. You know, no one knows what to think. You've got these tribal political ideologies, you know, jamming propaganda down your throat everywhere you look. And, you know, we've, we, I mean, we, we had millions of followers on Facebook and whatnot. The organic reach just crashed and we witnessed firsthand really by, by posting a lot of content from like independent media that Facebook was really targeting independent media, anti-authoritarian groups, not just on the right, but on the left as well. A lot of like progressive truth focused groups were getting banned on Facebook as well. And because I don't think truth is truth isn't political. The fact that it's become political is, is so sad. The fact that the, you know, the word truther is like a pejorative term is like a sick thing. I mean, that's like something that Orwell would, would write. Like, and it's like, I I heard a buddy say this to me. Somebody said, what are you a truther? But you know, he said some kind of comment and he's like, as opposed to what a liar, you know, it's like, what, you know, what are we, what are we suggesting here? And you're right. It is very Orwellian. It's very double think, but you know, I think podcasting, particularly the flavor of podcasting that I engage in where, you know, we have an RSS feed that's hosted by, you know, somebody that I pay, I trust this provider. I think there's somebody who's not going to censor my podcast. You know, obviously I'm in touch with podcasters who are way past that. They're hosting their podcast themselves, right? And I think that harkens back to what you're describing, where people hosted their own email server. But, you know, as far as other mediums go, video shows, video content has kind of received the most attention for this sort of thing. But I think the internet really was slowly but surely, as you described it, when it changed to 2.0, you know, I'm not really internet literate or tech literate but from what i understand it seems that you know there was always this sort of push to slowly like tighten in this freedom that the internet was and you see this with many different things you know the establishment comes in and bastardizes whatever you know was initially inspired by people who are you know very innovative very brilliant in many cases but there are other arts that have been censored off the internet i mean 
podcasting is just one of these sort of mediums for this type of thing but what initially inspired you was it just being on the internet itself and and finding other people you know discussing similar things that you were interested in or was it a book like where did the initial spark come from i mean i've always been really obsessed with this idea of kind of voting with your dollars, but not like voting with your dollars, but more so voting with your attention and energy. I mean, even like back in the day, I went to UVM, uh, University of Vermont, and I really got into this, you know, into like local food, you know, local economies. And, you know, there's kind of this big food transparency movement. And we were actually holding events, which we called Gathering in the Minds, way back in the day, like before we had an app or anything, we were doing these, these live events, these forums slash festivals. So we would get a bunch of bands together, but also like do these forums, bringing in professors, students and talking about issues at, at the school or in the town. And like in one instance, we were talking about how UVM was invested in all these weapons manufacturers. And honestly, in this is kind of not, widely known, but most universities have these just ruthless stock portfolios where they're invested in just like the nastiest corporations you could ever imagine. And it's, you know, like, how is that, how does that make any sense? Like what, why, why does, you know, UVM who is talking about green energy and like sustainability, like meanwhile, they're invested in like McDonald's, Walmart, Raytheon, General Dynamics, like all these weapons manufacturers. It's like, why is our tuition money going here? And so ultimately we got like, we got the university to divest from a bunch of weapons manufacturers. And so, and that's not like mines, mines doesn't take stances like it's a platform for people to organize whatever they want to organize. So it's, uh, and I, I know that the boycott thing can kind of get, it, it can turn into a little bit mobbish. Like we see that happening with actually a lot of the deplatforming. So like sometimes you'll see these mobs like going after people's advertisers because they said a certain thing. And I think that that can be dangerous, but I do definitely support the idea of like, look, the apps you use, that is what is creating the power structure of the internet. Like if you want alternative media, you have to support alternative media. You have to watch alternative media. You have to listen to their podcasts, go to their websites, support the apps that are, that are enabling that information to flow freely. A lot of people love to complain about big corporations and big tech, but they're just doing it like only on Twitter and Facebook and YouTube. And it's just like, okay, it's, I understand you, you do kind of have to be there in a certain regard and it is getting, helping get the word out, but like creating that balance in your own actions, whether it's like support, whatever it's supporting, whatever it is that you care about, like putting your energy into there and not just like complaining about it. <laughs> That's really what, what I care about. And that's yeah. I mean, we we're, we're trying to walk the walk as much as we can in terms of the principles on minds. And I think that there's just, I've always had like a deep urge to understand what the hell's going on in the world as well. We don't know. We live in like just 
a secrecy complex, both in the government and within corporations. And I think the open source philosophy really sort of pervades, like I want it to pervade both. Like I want open source government. I want to know all the classified information. I want to know all like like the sketchy stuff that they're like purge it. That's what's going to give the, the country faith in the system is if there's, you know, transparency, like you can't even have informed speech if you don't know what is going on. If you don't act to me, freedom of information is actually more of a foundational sort of precept to everything than freedom of speech. Because like, if you're, if you're not aware of the information of what's going on in any given system, you're the, what are the words that are coming out of your out, out of your mouth are totally ignorant. So like, if you don't have access to the nature of the system, you, like anything you say is just sort of uninformed and, and not useless, but it's not really that helpful. So I think that like open source corporations, open source government, where we have access to like how things are running, access to the data, understand what they're doing to us so that we can then react to it and, and help it evolve in a, in a sustainable way. And I think that's something that, you know, the listeners of this show can get behind. Absolutely. And I like the idea that, you know, anybody can come and organize for whatever cause they feel necessary. But, you know, unfortunately in this anything goes environment, there are mobs, there are people who have fundamentalist beliefs, there are people who have extremist beliefs and they have, you know, this compunction to, you know, express this sometimes in, you know, seemingly violent ways. And then we have these social media companies that come and blur the lines for what qualifies as truly hateful speech or violent speech. And, you know, I'm all for freedom of speech. I'm not for harassment. You know, obviously, I think that's something that's common sense. Everybody would go ahead and say, you know what, you know, it's 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 a pretty, you know, I think it's the golden rule, you know, treat others the yes. way you want to be treated. But unfortunately, you know, we can't expect everybody to have that moral acumen. So are there ways that minds is correcting for that? Is there anything built into that? You know, do you, you know, are you totally against that kind of control or do you think it's on, you know, individual moderators to make that uh, determination for themselves? Yeah. I, you, you sort of wish that the only policy necessary would be the golden rule, but yeah, there, there are definitely people who, who are going to abuse that. I mean, in terms of policy and like moderation, we base our policy around the first amendment as much as possible. I, I say a lot, like why would any Silicon Valley company think that their, you know, little team of lawyers is going to come up with a more battle tested and, you know, workable policy than the first amendment. I mean, the first amendment has been battle tested for hundreds of years. There's case law, there's, all kinds of precedent, which proves that it works and it can be nasty. I mean, you know, a lot of nasty speech is allowed in the U S but I think that's why people all over the world flock to us. And 
you know, it's very easy to get into this entitled mode. And I think that that's where uh, I think a lot of people in the U S actually are acting very entitled, you know, look at people's outrage, even about Elon Musk buying Twitter. Like they're literally mad that he's buying Twitter because he's gonna, you know, he's, he, at least he says he's going to bring back free speech on Twitter. The fact that somebody would be mad about that. It's like, well, wait a second. Don't you realize that there are people in authoritarian regimes around the world? We've even had a lot of these users come to mind from Thailand, Vietnam, where they would give anything to be able to live in a, in a free society with free speech, or even to just be able to speak on a platform that has free speech. The idea that you would have a right and then willingly give it up because you know, people are offended by certain words. Like that's a very arrogant philosophy to have to, you know, to, to have something that people all over the world would do anything for. And then you just want to throw it away because you think that bad words cause, cause harm. And when you actually dig into that, so we wrote like an 80 page research paper recently about this exact subject, which you can find at minds.com slash change. We brought in PhDs, researchers, de-radicalization experts brought together all the empirical evidence around the impact that censorship actually has when you look at the data and, you know, how networks evolve. Censorship almost across the board causes increased radicalization. It causes isolation. It causes depression. It causes people to become reinforced in the beliefs that they had beforehand. They go into these darker chambers where they don't have access to more information. So, you know, they're going to, you know, their ideology is going to become compounded. This is what happens. So all the deplatforming that's happening on big tech is pretty clearly causing the polarization that we're seeing in society today. You know, they don't really, they obviously don't want to admit that they, I've never seen any of the research that they claim shows that like misinformation and hate speech can have all of this real world harm. I'm not saying those things aren't bad. There is, there certainly is certain speech that is awful, but, that, but you have to ask yourself what, what happens when you ban someone who is awful, but legal? Well, like we just said, they just go somewhere else and it gets worse. And so I, we have to think about, extreme ideology, whether it's religious or, you know, whatever it is, as I think of more of like a mental health issue, like people love to just become ideological. We definitely, I think humans sort of have a tendency to do this. And I'm not saying everybody who, you know, goes down a rabbit hole is mentally ill or anything, but like some are, some aren't, you know, you kind of have to look at each case on a contextual basis to understand, okay, maybe, you know, maybe this fringe person is a, is a super genius. That is totally possible throughout, throughout history. The fringe is where you get the best and worst ideas. Most major breakthroughs scientifically, philosophically have been from totally fringe characters who were demonized initially. And then, you know, they prove to change the world. So you, if you, when you ban the fringe, you have to be super careful because 
you're potentially contributing to like the, the blockade of human evolution when you do that. So yeah, I just, I think we need to be thinking about this from much more of a mature perspective. I'm really glad that, that Elon is talking about free speech. I hope that he follows through on it. And, but just the fact that the conversation is being had, he's talking about open source algorithms so that we can understand why we're seeing what we're seeing is something being shadow banned. You know, if, if it's open source, we're, you know, at least this, the, the developers and computer scientists are, they're going to go and inspect as soon as Twitter's algos go open source. Like it's going to, it's going to be so fascinating, man, because the thing, and, and it, it's, it'll also be very interesting what they open source if they do, because on GitHub or GitLab, which are kind of where developers build code for anyone who doesn't know, they also have what's called a version history. So you could see like this exists for Twitter. Like you, there's a whole version history of all the changes they made to the algorithms and code over the years. So it's in the code if they've done shady stuff and you know, I'm just, it, it's, it's honestly hilarious that it's happening. I, I, I can't, I can't believe it. And I'm wondering, you know, when it comes to what you were saying about, you know, psychological mental health being really to sort of blame for it. I, I wonder, you know, do you think mass media is also to blame? Cause we see this sort of one dimensional psychological aspect to the broad majority of what the mainstream consumers are. And this, in my opinion, just from my, you know, short, time on the planet here of 27 years, it seems like that really facilitates in a similar way to what you're describing with censorship, this really fundamental, because they give people a very one-dimensional perspective and you have obviously so many fringe, you know, diverse groups of people that aren't, you know, we'll say represented. And this creates an atmosphere where, yeah, these sorts of things maybe are, are, push to an extreme in a way that, you know, overlaps and, and ends up hurting other people. But do you think that there's an aspect of, you know, mass media manipulation going on on the internet level with characters like Elon Musk, with players like, you know, Twitter and, and whatever the guy's name is there and all the rest, Zuckerberg and so on? Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm, I'm definitely not saying like trust Elon Musk. I think, you know, he is absolutely like part of the elite. However, I, I do feel like he is diversion in terms of his, just, just in terms of like looking what he says and what he does compared to many others. I mean, he is trying to build sustainable energy. He is, you know, trying to go to Mars. He is, you know, he literally is an internet troll. Like he posts like memes that you would see out of your friend from like, who's like a shit poster. Like he is a shit poster. That's just the, his, he like, he, he likes memes. That's just, that's to have the richest man in the world be doing that is not to be underestimated. Like all of the pressures that are on him to not do that 
are so immense, but he's still doing it. So, you know, I've never met the guy. I, I, I don't think that he is perfect by any stretch. I'm sure that there's shady shit that he's been involved in, but I mean, in terms of mass media, like absolutely they're, they're, they're completely trying to engineer ideology they're not approaching media in a good faith, critical thinking perspective. They're not trying to teach their viewers how to think. They're, they're, com- they're completely political. They're, they're, I mean, CNN is basically seems like an arm of the government. I mean, you know, they're not, they're basically stenographers of the government as opposed to, you know, actually trying to combat the government. And, you know, I think that, Fox is pretty bad too. There's, I, th- I think Fox is probably like a little bit better, but that no. ebbs and fl- that ebbs and flows with with the time. I mean, you know, there's no, right. they're not, they're, they're they're certainly not going as far as as you wish they would. Now, yeah, and you know, that's old media. I'm wondering, and I, I'm with you there, 100. I'm wondering how much of that, you know, what we see with CNN, how much of that is now going on on the internet. I mean, we have Bezos, another, you know, incredibly rich person who owns Amazon. Amazon's creating a, a podcast app they have now. They do all sorts of, you know, different oh, yeah. things connecting to the culture. They're clearly a big influence on what people see or don't see, or at least keeping track of it. I mean, they have uh, those talking boxes in everyone's home now at this point. Dude, CNN is a gnat. They are nothing. They have no audience anymore. They, you know, any like comparatively to, you know, big tech, Fox, you know, MSNBC, CBS, AB, all the alphabet media companies, like they have no power. They, they have no technology. They don't, they, they are at the whims of big tech because big tech is where people consume that media. No one's going like barely anybody is going to CNN.com. I mean, like, but how much of that, how much of that cyberpunk internet freedom that you described initially is really alive with big tech. It really feels like just this sort of same, you know, playbook of, you know, the titans of industry a hundred years ago. They just changed corporations. They changed the medium through which they express their greed, you know? That's for sure. No, no, I do not think that any of the big tech sites are encompassing like original cypherpunk values. Hopefully Twitter will get better, but you there's no reason to trust that and you want to diversify anyway. So, yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot of smart people that work for these companies that are basically, you know, just sold out and they just got offered so much money and it's, it's sad. I mean, but the, but the good news is that, you know, alternative social media, alternative media, independent really is, is exploding. I mean, there's no, there's no contest anymore. Like independent media is mainstream now it's not like people who still like it's like we have to stop even calling legacy media mainstream because it's just over they've they've lost it's all a joke now they 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 still happen to have like channels on tv but if you look at their viewership it's just like there's 
their viewership is like the same as like a medium sized YouTuber. It's not, it's nothing. Like this podcast, we get um, about 3,000 downloads per episode lately. Is that about, you know, what the average TV show gets? I think I saw this chart. Rogan posted it. Or By the somebody. way, thank you to everybody who's listening. I love the fact that you're here. Thank you. Oh, and, oh, yeah. and check out Minds while you're at it. You could probably check it out from your mobile browser because I know most of you are listening to this on your phone. But go ahead. Would you Do you have a statistic on how abysmal it is, what the gap looks like? Because I agree. I think, you know, the... The market is showing it too. I mean, you have all these platforms that are jumping up now to, you know, take the place of what used to be as simple as like turning on a cable box in your tele, you know, on your television set in your home and you just had what you had. Now people have an abundance of ways to connect with millions of different varieties of, of content. You know, not all of it is, is to our liking, you know, some of it's just mundane and, and really, you know, the opposite of what our culture should have, but you know, it is what it is. It's freedom of, of human expression. So here's uh yeah, this is what was posted. So I'll just read it. So this is the Q3 2021 media ratings by Nielsen and Spotify are the sources. So Rogan has 11 million viewers per show, Tucker 3.24 million, the five 2.98 Hannity 2.94 Fox primetime average 2.37, Ingram angle 2.35, Rachel Maddow 2.2, MSNBC 1.27, CNN 0.82. So CNN is getting 820,000 per show, which so, so Rogan is literally 10 to 12 times bigger than CNN. That's ridiculous. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the, we've gotten ten percent of of what CNN has on there our best go, episode. Man. On the rise, on the rise. <laughs> it's only gonna, it's only going to keep growing. CNN's going to keep. It. It. The thing is that it's just shocking to me that they don't reverse course and start to do what people clearly like, which is just be real and you know not clearly censor yourself, not clearly have some, some shady agendas. And cause they could, you know, they could start getting real, but they just don't. And, you know, you can, and, and I think that that's what fuels conspiracy and it rightfully. So, I mean, if, if the, if it's so brutally obvious that all you have to do to have people watch you is just be real and clearly and not be, political tribals it's not that hard you know but they just keep trying to pull people into their tribe and it's it's really like pathetic to watch it's it, mm. i don't know it's like it's just like a dying animal that like doesn't want to let go now where where do you go when it comes to conspiracy because when i see conspiracy you know i'm looking at a subject from you know multiple years of seeing the evolution at least you know from my perspective again not that long on the planet but there is a you know huge variety of disagreeing ideologies within conspiracy itself and that's not even really a term that i would you know consider meaning really anything at all 
But when yeah. it comes to conspiracy theories themselves that maybe you first became aware of, maybe ones that you talk about when you're in situations like this with like-minded company, you know, what are some of the conspiracy theories maybe that even motivate you to do what you're doing? You know, I think that just seeing how few sort of holding companies own like all like the corporations, you know, there's kind of that, that viral meme that goes around that just shows like all the logos of all of the major brands and how they're just sort of owned by so few. I think that that is just, I don't even know the validity of some of those charts. I think that they probably, they probably are real. And so regardless of anything, like that just seems dangerous for there to be so much centralization of that, of power and information. But I mean, you know, for me, I don't know, obviously what I feel is the most critical conspiracy that I like the most that I research the most, I mean, it has to be extraterrestrials and, and UFOs. I think that that is just, so relevant to everybody. I mean, cause it's, it's answering the question, like, why are we here? What, what is actually going on? What is the current state of the world? What is the current state of the technology that we have? You know, are these things government drones or are these things not government drones or are they some sort of nat natural phenomena? Like we don't, there's just no transparency about it. And so this is why it's totally justified for no matter how crazy the conspiracy theory is, it's totally justified for it to exist because the burden should be on the people who have information that they're not sharing. I mean, even in, you know, with all these recent disclosures with like the Tic Tac UFO and the Pentagon releasing all these new videos, it's like they created this new department and you know, Chris Mellon, who I don't know if people are aware of, he's like a form, he, he's an insider intelligence guy who, who's been doing a bunch of interviews. He's very knowledgeable about what's going on. And he's, he wrote this piece in the Hill about the overclassification of a lot of the, the new information. It's just like the class the classified information complex is so severe that you know, even after this wave of disclosures, they're, they're still kind of retracting into their old ways and they're just kind of refusing to be fully transparent about the research that they're doing. And, you know, I just, I, I'm very interested personally in like hammering on that. And I'm just going to put my work in while I'm here, you know, apart from all the tech stuff to, to pursue that because it's just insane regardless of what's real, I'm not like, I don't have an agenda one way or the other. It's just clear that there's fuckery going on. So I'm going to, I'm going to dig into that and try to try to figure out what's going on. I mean, undoubtedly there's fuckery going on. Have you heard of uh, Gary McKinnon before you ever, you know who Gary McKinnon the is? The UK guy? Yeah. The, the hacker. Yes. Yes. We, we recently had a, a guy on who does a podcast called Modem Mischief, excellent podcast. He only talks about true crime hackers. 
And what you just said, I mean, sort of gave me a, you know, sort of glimpse of what Gary McKinnon's story is. But yeah, for people who haven't heard, he's a NASA hacker. He hacked into NASA looking for proof of aliens and allegedly he found stuff, which, you know, maybe was a reason why they tried to extradite him and put him in jail here in the States. But as far as, you know, un you know, un, in undefiable evidence. Like if you were on like the stand or if you were in a situation where, you know, somebody was really like holding it to you. Cause we, in this podcast, in this realm, we're in the, we're in the belief system that we don't give knowledge to those who don't seek it. You know, we're not going to shove this kind of stuff down anyone's throat. But if you were in a situation like that, where you had to prove a case for, for UFOs or aliens, what do you think stands out as like the most, you know, credible example of a UFO encounter? Because I'm not exactly a skeptic. I'm more of a believer like yourself. But I'm wondering if you could answer that for the, for the skeptics in the audience. There's a handful of cases. You know, the main ones that come to mind would definitely be, be the Tic Tac with uh, Commander Fravor which people can look just, if you just search, you know, Fravor, Tic Tac, you know, he did a really great interview on the Lex Fridman show, which I highly recommend checking out. And he's, he, you know, he just gives his firsthand account, you know, hundreds of people saw See, it, you know, it's, and that's to me, that's like the, and I don't, you know, we don't have to agree on everything here, but to me, that's the least interesting one, but just because there's so much hype around it, the military seems so involved and it doesn't yeah, yeah, seem keep going. I don't know. No, no, please cool. tell me, but I, I just, I, that one, the Tic Tac, I'm like, I'm like, ah, that it's too, too mainstream to be, no, it's to not, be. it's not too mainstream. You know, it's just there, there seems to be a level of acceptance that raises a red flag for me. You know, it's not that it's too mainstream. It It is mainstream within the UFO community. Absolutely. Yeah. But, but I mean, if you asked, you know, a random person on the street, they might think you were trying to offer them a mint, you know, they don't know that you're talking about a yeah. UFO. Yeah. In terms of visually, it's not necessarily the most compelling either. Like it easily, I, I would not be surprised if it was some sort of like a hologram or some sort of weird drone thing but you know i think the phoenix lights also really interest me because you know that was i think that happened in like 2001 i want to say you know over phoenix there was this giant triangular craft that was hovering over the city and there's like pretty clear video footage of it like you can clearly see an object huge and the day after well the the governor fife symington now completely says that he thinks it was extraterrestrial and you know the day after they kind of did this mockery where fife symington walked into this press conference wearing this alien suit and was sort of trying to make a big joke about it even but then he later basically said that that was a, a big mistake and that yeah he he absolutely thinks you know that's even going further than i would necessarily go but like he saw it so I, I more so just think that it's, it's a clear case of like thousands of people saw it. It's happening. What is going on? Why isn't, you know, why aren't we getting more information about this? You know, what is the, it's just, there's, there's just no statements really. I, I forget what the air force statement was, but you know, that's a really good one. There's, I don't know. What's your favorite? Well, when it comes to, you know, first, I think those are usually important. And the Betty and Barney Hill 
case is a favorite. And you, you mentioned being at U, UVM, which that mm-hmm. happened not too far away. A lot of people set their sights on, you know, the American Southwest when they think of UFOs. But New Hampshire actually, as a matter of fact, has had equal amount of, you know, strange strange occurrences like that. And I'm sure you know, Vermont and New Hampshire are pretty much the same state. I mean, the border between them, there's towns all along that river, you know, it's like, that's where the majority of the action is. But it's interesting, you know, like the Betty and Barney Hill case, because they, you know, they didn't really need the attention. And they also like, you know, had a compelling story that never changed. I could be missing some details, but that one always stood out to me. You know, the fact that they were abducted for seemingly no reason, you know, they were out on the road, they they saw light and they really shocked them. They pulled over and next thing they know, you know, they're missing, I don't know, two days of time, something like that a day of time or several hours. And I mean, there are numerous cases. I've had Ryan Bledsoe on the podcast. His father had a pretty outstanding case of a UFO encounter, which they now think of as more of like an interdimensional being. And and that kind of begs the question I should pose to you, which is like, when you think about this in a speculative philosophical way, do you think aliens are flesh and blood nuts and bolts or do you think there may be phasing through some kind of portal do you think there may be like just here in the same sense that maybe biblical people saw angels and whatnot you know there's the you know the rendlesham forest incident where you know that craft landed and you get the uh, binary code yeah and they tied and didn't they, didn't some of them get radiation um poisoning I'm pretty sure. And they sort of, you know, in terms of like the materials used, they, they thought that there seemed to be some sort of like, honestly, I'm not, I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm not an expert on any of this. I'm just sort of, that's fine. Dork about it. But like, (laughs) I think that they were implying some sort of consciousness correlation. And I think a lot of people have, have mentioned that, that they sort of think that there's some interdimensional correlation with, with these craft. I honestly don't know, but it does, it does make sense. Like, you know, nuts and bolts moving across the universe seems unlikely. I mean, it's just so far to go. And I'm not saying that, I mean, I think that the estimates on like what it would take Starship to get to Mars were, I want to say like a couple of years. And so that's with, that's with that level of combustion technology. You know, I don't know. I honestly, I, I there's this film called The Phenomenon, which is pretty good, which is by James O'Keefe, who has, no, not James O'Keefe. That's the Veritas guy. I think his name is also... James uh, something, but anyway, they, it was, they interviewed like Harry Reed who died recently, but at the end of his life, he was very like outspoken about UFO disclosure. Harry Reed, the politician for, for people to know, there's a crazy interview of him right before he died, sort of explaining how, how important he thinks it is that this, this information comes out. And then they go through a bunch of really high profile cases. There's like the, there's that town, was it in South Africa? where all the students 
witness the the craft you yeah. know out there they all drew pictures of it and stuff and they all like a lot of them still remember it and they interview the teachers and everything and so i think like just the sheer magnitude of cases like you only you know of all the thousands of cases you don't like only one has to be valid which is just a crazy thing to think about. I mean, that's what are, are, are the chances higher that all of them are BS or that one out of just the multitude of cases has validity to it. I don't know. I mean, and then, and then you get into the people who are, you know, very like, absolutely believe that extraterrestrial life exists just because pure probability wise, even the smartest scientists in the world who don't believe in, you know, aliens having visited earth at all, they still nearly across the board think that extraterrestrial life is a, is a kind of inevitability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In, and I think universe. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it would be, silly as a as a global species for us to think that this was a closed system and it all somehow just happened here by itself but but yeah i think a lot of scientists you know take that materialist sense of like yeah there's it's it's undoubtedly you know a probability right to them that whether they have proof of that no they could just <laughs> tell you the statistics and all that but you mentioned something that I want to circle back to, which is like the idea and, you know, maybe this is a belief of yours, in which case I'd love to hear more uh, about why you feel this way. But the idea that something about the truth of aliens, whatever they represent, whatever they're here for, can tell us about our human origins, because I think that's a big reason why a lot of people even venture into the world of conspiracy to use that you know, nasty term again, because they see that there's, you know, a missing link. There's, there's a big question. Why are we here? Who are Mm -hmm. we? And there aren't a lot of people, you know, satisfying, providing satisfying answers for that question. So, you know, what, what makes you think that aliens might have a a sort of key to maybe the, the origins of humanity? And if I'm saying too much, you know, if that's not what you believe, then feel free to disagree. I don't want to, you know, preempt you to say something. Yeah, I mean, it's all it's all speculation, but I think that the you know the correlation between a lot of sightings at nuclear facilities is sort of indicative potentially of you know them wanting to communicate to us that, you know, this is really sketchy, sketchy territory and that we need to really kind of be more conscious of, of what we're doing on the planet. And I mean, obviously if we met aliens, we would understand that there is some sort of like genetic pattern in the universe that is pervasive and consciousness is pervasive. I think that a lot of the consciousness stuff bleeds into it. You know, there's kind of the whole panpsychist realm of thought, which says that consciousness is like a fundamental force 
in the universe. And I think that that would kind of mesh nicely with, with the, just the reality that life is ever present and sort of consciousness being everywhere. And then, you know, given certain conditions, it can, it can evolve into more complex forms of life. So it would more so just give us, you know, if we confirmed it, we would, we would just understand the nature of the universe and how life actually operates, how consciousness actually operates. But yeah, I mean, we could potentially learn that lesson even from just like super primitive life. If we can, if we can figure it out, even in our own solar system, but also go ahead. Well, I was going to say when you, when you say primitive life, I mean, I know you mentioned in the Calendly notes that you're versed in psychedelics, you know, allegedly, we don't need to give away your, your resume, what you've done exactly if you don't want to, but, but, you know, I've used mushrooms and acid. And I think that something about mushrooms connects us to a primordial force. And, you know, this isn't a original thought. Many great writers and thinkers have, have written this down and, and spoken about this before, but do you think that, you know, that is that what you're referring to when you say primitive life, like understanding primitive life, this in, on a consciousness level? Yeah, I mean, I think Dennis McKenna makes some really interesting comments about how, and this this is just sort of a fun theory, but that psychedelic plants are feeding humans information that acts as sort of like this evolutionary vehicle to, to protect the earth. I think that, you know, when you, when you do psychedelics, I, at least for me, I constantly have this experience of just wanting like sort of like deep gratitude for the planet and wanting to protect it and just being like completely disgusted with materialism and industrial society and you and even just like internally you start to feel like oh like i've just been eating like such crap i've been like treating my body so poorly i've been you know the planet is just fucked and so he sort of you know in the same way that a you know a plant will use you know different organisms to like carry out their progeny or or evolution like you know he says that psychedelic plants are sort of using humans to communicate that message to protect the earth and i just feel like that's a fun concept that we're sort of being used as the vehicles for the information from whatever sort of deep consciousness exists Mm. and regardless of whether it's true i sort of like I, i i enjoy it as a as a thought experiment to understand like how the earth could be communicating to itself to protect itself. Right. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, even the history of the plants, as we're told from the indigenous peoples of South America and even, you know, Mesoamerica and with certain plants, but ayahuasca is sort of like the, you know, perennial psychedelic as far as experience goes it kind of offers maybe arguably the most profound i don't think that we can put them on a hierarchy scale like that but it has 
uh, different status among all the psychedelics is this real journey. And uh, they talk about, you know, exactly what you're describing, this sort of consciousness from the plants that it spoke to them and, and, and explained what the right mix was. You know, you imagine being in the Amazon jungle around millions of plants, how are you going to determine, you know, exactly, you know, the Banisteriopis vine having that exact, you know, molecule that fits right in to bring out the DMT that's seemingly all over the forest. But, you know, not all of the plants can give you the best, you know, DMT. So it's interesting that, you know, they talk about, yeah, no, we didn't figure it out. You know, they're not like the alchemist of Western magic where they're like, yeah, we figured it all out in our laboratory. You know, they're like, no, 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 the spirits told us. And and I think there's a profound truth there. And I was going to kind of braid this in and you kind of did it for me. But like, where does alien, you know, where does alien consciousness come into play? Because I, I've heard many people talk about, you know, all of these strange beings that they encounter when they're on such journeys like the ones ayahuasca can take you down and uh, you know it brings to mind you know some similarities between what people claim to see when they see ufos and the creatures that are associated with those yeah like how how all these things get intertwined is definitely fascinating and it's also I think makes a lot of the gray alien stuff a little bit more suspect to, you know, I, yeah, just because these beings are kind of seen in dreams and there's sort of this history of the, of the symbols that get saturated into people's brains. And, you know, then like when they're having experience, they see it as well. I definitely think there's sort of like a meme element to it which doesn't necessarily say that like grays aren't real, but I think that there's some sort of deep, deep subconscious phenomena happening where it's kind of popping up in all of these different places. And yeah, I mean, are, are you familiar with the writer Daniel Pinchbeck? Yeah. I've seen several of his books. I, I don't, I don't know if I own one, but uh, I, I think, yeah. yeah, I've seen his books before. Yeah. He's, he's a cool guy. He's a friend of mine. Oh, and wow. uh, yeah, he, he, he wrote about this one, this one story in his book, 2012, the recurrent of Quetzalcoatl, the return of Quetzalcoatl talked about how he had, you know, he was sleeping and he was with his partner at the time and they both woke up in the middle of the night and he basically had just had a dream about like walking up to this group of aliens and the alien came up to him and just put his hand into Daniel's mouth or his finger into his mouth, like some weird, some weird shit. And then after that happened, he woke up and his partner put her finger into his mouth. And so just like, I, they were like having the same dream or something. And it was just like this cross cross pollination of, of thoughts happening and just pointing to some, some crazy synchronicity and, you know, potentially, you know, shared 
consciousness idea. And I, you know, all of that stuff is great. I love, I mean, there's this, there's actually a really good documentary called surviving death on Netflix right now. I highly recommend it. They go through some of the best cases of near death experiences, consciousness after like cardiac arrest, they go through reincarnation, like the most ridiculous stories of reincarnation where like these kids, their parents are just like, you know, these kids are like four and just telling all these stories about how they died in a plane crash. And like, this was their co-pilot and like, this was their ship that they lived on. The dad then goes on this research project, verifies all the information. And, you know, it's just like, like all these different cases of, of, of it happened just to such an insane degree of accuracy where these kids are just like spewing this information that they would never have. Otherwise there's actually a whole department at UVA called the department of, I think, perceptual studies where this guy, Dr. Ian Stevenson, who's dead now, but he was like one of the premier researchers on reincarnation. He would travel the whole world and document all of these tales from like India and, you know, cultures everywhere, you know, basically gathering anecdotal evidence of these types of patterns emerging. And yeah, it's, it's a, in the Leslie Keen, who's actually a huge UFO researcher is in the, the surviving death documentary as well, but it's, I, I recommend it. I think it's really well done. Some of the, the medium stuff is a little bit more sketchy. I don't know. There's clearly some, cause the, it, this whole world is sort of, it has a lot of people who I think are manipulators too. I think there's a lot of people in the conspiracy world who, you know, find a niche. They, you know, pretend they're channeling information. Maybe they think they're channeling for, for all we know. I have David no idea. David Wilcock. Oh, David <laughs> Wilcock. Don't get me started. I, you're like, Wilcock. you know, I, I honestly, I never really encountered his material outside of seeing his name on books at various bookshops, but Many guests have brought him up and, and you're, you're not the first person to bring this subject up. And yeah, it's, it's strange how many fraudsters there are talking about secret space program, this secret, secret space program, that, and uh, brings a lot of suspicion to the whole UFO topic altogether. I mean, especially when you look at how implicated the military is throughout the whole conversation, you know, it just, I mean, who are you going to trust? You, you discussed earlier wanting to defund the, you know, weapons manufacturers. And I kudo that, you know, I agree. I don't think there should be war on the planet. I don't think universities that are expressing things about the environment and, and political and social change should then also behind the cover of a stock, you know, portfolio invest in th these interests that are absolutely not. I mean, let's remind the audience, the military is the number one polluter on the planet. You described the UFOs that go and disarm nuclear missiles. There's a clear conscious energy here on the planet. And this isn't a hippy dippy concept. You know, I don't, I don't believe that our earth is fragile. If anything, we're more at risk to be swallowed up by her than to, you know, destroy her. I really believe that more than this sort of lie that's pushed out with climate change. But it is sort of strange that 
you know, UFOs have this kind of bridge between all these variety of subjects, you know, mm-hmm. and it, it really makes you step back and, and I don't, you know, I don't see why you wouldn't have that, you know, curiosity. I think it's absolutely fundamental. People who don't entertain these ideas probably don't listen to podcasts like this anyway, so we don't really need to to speak to them. But if if we do meet some of those people, come on over to our side of the fence and, and take a dive into open-minded waters and, and look at all these great things. And, you know, more and more, the spaces for which people to do that are being limited, you know, and I think it's important maybe for your interest, if we circle back to minds and, and how, you know, people are coming together in new ways on the internet and there needs to be new people like yourself to, and what you're, you know, standing in front of here with minds, you know, to offer a platform for people to do that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, look, we're just, our goal is to elevate global dialogue. I think that people get into this frame of mind where they feel like attached to their opinions. And ultimately we just got to get to a place where people can like hold simultaneous opposing views and like not even hold views, just, you know, sort of have views, but like, don't hold on to them. Like they're just sort of, they're passing, they're constantly updating like don't become attached to your, to your thoughts. And in the same way, when you're scrolling through your social media feed, like, why are you trying to attach some post you saw to your personality? Like, just let it flow by. You're going to be happier. And, you know, I think earlier on in the combo, I don't know if we were, we were alive yet, but you were, you were talking about how with your parents, like you sort of wish that you hadn't come on so strong early on. And I have, I've, I've a very similar experience. It like, though they ultimately did become pretty open-minded, I think more so just because they saw what I was doing with minds and ended up just spending more time on minds. And that ultimately just caused them to open up, but it's totally true and such a waste of time to try to convince people of anything. It psychologically, you know, it, it sort of gets into the, the deplatforming psychology, like, if you, when you try to force someone to think or ban them for, you know, because you thought something wrong, like it causes this reaction where even if you want to believe, even if you would be open to a conspiracy that someone is telling you, if they're just like thirsty for your attention and trying to ram it down your throat, like it just will not be absorbed. It's, it has, it almost has nothing to do with the information that's being shared. It's just like a, a social dynamic where when people are just obnoxious and like trying to one up you and trying to like force you to, to take on a certain thought, like it, it just doesn't work and it can really like, and then they get attached to being resistant to it because they had that initial bad experience with the topic. And so anyone who's trying to push any, I mean, if like propaganda 101 and even in Daryl Davis talks about this a lot, who's, you know, just a hero that we partner with who has actually 
helped many KKK members leave the KKK. And his whole thing is, I don't, I'm not trying to convince them of anything. Like I just sit there and listen to them. Like he doesn't even say a word until they start asking him questions. And that is just like, that's the approach. So I'm not trying to like advocate, you know, psychological techniques, <laughs> but to be honest, it is like sort of, if you want to push an idea, don't push it. Suggest it. Yeah. Suggest it. Like leave something to be, you know, for the, for the curious to, to inquire more, like don't act like you're so attached to it. Like, it's just like blech, when people are clearly so dogmatic about whatever they're saying. I mean, even people that I, you know, you agree with when, when they're just not reading the room, it's, it's really annoying. I hear you there. I wonder, you know, just so people know, I set up minds literally within the last minute while you're speaking. I just signed in, made an account. It's that easy. Nice. What's your username? My family thinks I'm crazy. No spaces or anything else like that. Just letters. Nice. But but yeah, I love it. I mean, I got to change it to dark mode. I hope you have that. But other than that, it's fantastic already. It's pretty straightforward. I mean, I was expecting to sign in and have you walk me through but i mean it really just looks like any other social media platform but in a in a really brilliant way but i one thing i'm seeing is the wallet that's a huge differentiator yeah, yeah. i actually just sent you a few tokens to play around with right so now. thank you wallet basically tracks your earnings both crypto and cash like i mentioned we we have these rev share programs for cash and we also reward people with crypto for your contributions on the app. So, and you can also get tipped from other creators and one token is worth a thousand views. So you, there's a little boost button on your, on your posts and you can boost your content with the tokens that you earn, which I think is a huge differentiator where, you know, on most apps you have to pay for promotion on mines. You can literally just come and if you just participate and post really cool content and, generate engagement, like you'll earn tokens and then you can use those tokens to kind of break out and get more people to see your stuff. And I just, I, I feel like that, that earnability, the, the, like people will spend decade, a decade on big social apps and just get nothing. And it's so my starting my video. Did you just send me a prompt to do something? Well, unless you were planning on sharing your screen, yeah, I asked you to start your video again. But no big deal if you if oh, you did, did that I, oh, for a reason. I didn't I didn't know that it stopped. Oh um sorry, let me fix it. That's I all think right. I, think I unplugged it. There we go. Cool. I'm back. Yeah. So and then in mine, so we are not like ad based. We do have Minds Plus, which is minds.com slash plus. And basically what that is is a rev share program with members where the, the best analogy that I can give, which I don't necessarily like comparing to other apps, but like imagine if Netflix or some streaming service shared their revenue with you and you could upload a film to Netflix. And if it performed well at the end of the month, they would give you a payout. So Minds Plus, when you join, you get access to this exclusive feed of content 
blogs, videos, photos, whatever. But you also get the ability to post into that feed. And then if you post popular content, we basically share our revenue for Minds Plus with the creators who post content into it. So it's like this shared membership pool. And that's been great. People love that. And then, yeah, the crypto is awesome too. We can, we're, the Minds token is an Ethereum based token. So right. we use, we use that blockchain. Yeah. It's, it's very similar to Rockfin, which I'm pretty familiar with. So I'm, I figure it's a no brainer for people who are already familiar with Rockfin. You, I assume you just connect your Coinbase wallet, or maybe if you're more adept, you probably have a, a preferred app, but we're not talking to those folks. They know what they're doing. But yeah, this is cool, man. I mean, how far does the content go? Would I be able to conceivably one day plug my RSS feed into this and people would be able to listen to audio or do you guys plan on being, you know, primarily a social I media? Yes, I can definitely commit that we're going to have audio support this year. Cool. So, you know, hold me to that. Cool. <laughs> we'll follow up. We'll, yeah, I think audio is, is so essential. We, we do support video now and... We also have blogs. We have, well, and the reason I I brought that up is because a, a big issue I see with the uh, with the podcast community, and it's not really an issue because it's part of the decentralized nature of what we're engaging. Is it? There's only one or two platforms that people can listen to podcasts on and then comment. You know, I think Podcast Addict, which mm-hmm. I like to use, recently added this feature. But, you know, it's it's sort of what makes YouTube really popular. And I noticed my audio content, which, you know, YouTube now censors by putting a gray screen instead of the photo that I choose, the thumbnail that I worked hard on. They they just put a gray screen over it. But despite that, people still listen to, you, you know, YouTube audio, you know, and I imagine that most of those people are on their desktop. I can't imagine that they're on their phone, but, you know, bless them if they are. That would be so such a hassle for me. But I prefer the podcast addict format. But I just wish that there was a more centralized way to gather, like, comments and what the listeners were thinking right after they listened to the show. So if you built this into minds where people could listen to the show, I mean, I would regularly check it and be like, oh, wow, this is what people thought of this episode Shout out to Minds. Follow us there, you know, and and that's not just to egg you on. I think that's something that people in my position, especially newer podcasters who want to engage with their audience, you know, that's a tool that really helps, you know, outside of going and creating your own website and putting up a board for commenters. I mean, there are big podcasts who have those facilities, but yeah, this is excellent. We do have, you know, in the meantime, we have a content importer so that your YouTube videos will post automatically. Oh, cool. So that, you know, it's a little bit less maintenance. If you just go into your settings, there's a, there's a YouTube importer where there's a Twitter importer too. So, but yeah, RSS needs to happen as soon as possible with, with pure audio support. I think that, you know, not enough social networks really give audio the love it deserves so yeah i I completely agree well and especially now when it's you know hitting a sort of uh all-time high i mean podcasting is relatively new in the scope of media i mean it's not new in the sense that it's essentially the same thing as radio broadcasting but it's you know different it's more personal it's it's certainly you know more user-friendly and independent i mean I know a lot of people who run successful shows for free using Anchor. 
you know, although I wouldn't recommend people host with anchor. I think this is the last bastion of free speech and what you're doing is helping reroute, you know, all the problems that Facebook and Twitter cause. If only the average person would migrate to minds. That's the thing where, you know, we can come in and, you know, the reach of the podcasts can help you guys find a broader audience, hopefully. I mean, so yeah. No- and we would love to have it. I think that, you know, most people, you know, they, they think that they don't have enough time and that's probably true in to some degree, but you don't, you have to understand that a very small amount of energy gives massive impact when it comes to new technology. So being willing to just give a little bit of energy, you know, the phones, the, the apps that are on your phone that you check every day, like, when you click on an app, like that matters, like you're giving them energy. So it's not to say like, don't, don't give big tech apps energy. You know, some of them have value and it's, they're not going to just go away. But if you want to see the internet transform, then you have to put some of those taps into podcasting apps, into alternative social networks, into like, don't use Safari browser. Don't use Chrome, you know, use brave, use Firefox, like use browser. Like in, it's just not clear enough to people that like, like they're like, what? Like, I don't, it's just a browser. Like what? I I don't care. Like, I'm just gonna, but it does matter. Like you could so easily rather than giving Apple or Google all of that energy, you know, suddenly you're giving privacy focused, open source apps, energy, and it's literally doing exactly the same thing. So it's such an easy swap or an easy supplement where you can just pop in and like, suddenly you just gave them another, you know, listener on the podcast or another active user on the app. Like that is the kind of stuff that builds on itself and has massive impact. So I think, yeah, that's my recommendation. Just to ease into it. Don't overthink it. You know, you don't have to go cold Turkey or anything. Right on. Well, Bill, I think that that makes a lot of sense, man. And I think a lot of people out there listening, you know, take it upon yourself right now, make your, you know, make a a difference in your life. Because I'll tell you what, when I started listening to podcasts and I started, you know, getting outside of Spotify and getting outside of all these big mainstream platforms, I found original, authentic content which you know inspired me to get into it myself so yeah i mean this is awesome this is what the internet needs more of is there anything you want to wrap up with any message you want to leave the audience with you know before we close up here and obviously we want them to get to minds.com like i said super easy made an account while we were talking, not a big deal. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed talking to you. We have mobile apps too. At, if you go to minds.com slash mobile, you can download those. Hit me up. I'm at Otman, O-T-T-M-A-N on Minds. So, you know, definitely hit me up. Let me know what you think. And yeah, let's keep rocking, man. Look forward to doing it again sometime. Right on. Well, Bill, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with us. And thank you for doing what you do with Minds. Like I said, It's a resource that we need and we need more stuff like this on the internet. Keep it free. Keep it open. 
And with that, folks, thank you for listening and enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being here. Thank you for sticking with us and tuning into this episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast with Bill Ottman, CEO of Minds.com. And when you sign up for Minds.com, make sure you follow us. I haven't posted anything there yet, but this episode will be out Wednesday, which is a day away from when I'm recording this. So in the meantime, I'll put some stuff there and... Speaking of interesting content that you can only find in certain places, we've got a Rockfin where we put all of the video interviews, the video versions of the interview rather. So you can go there and check out the video version of this episode if you need to. You already listened this far, so what's the point? We also have a Patreon. Patreon is the best place to support the show. You get a spirit animal name, you become a part of the family. We do monthly meetups you get a spirit animal name and you hear your spirit animal name in a new segment of the patreon where it's just me sharing with you what i've been researching that week going through my browser history telling you things that have fascinated me maybe the little odds and ends that don't make their way into a full interview you'll find that there I also have been playing around with some stuff that you're about to hear before this interview or for before this episode is over. I look for free archived content, lectures and things like that, audiobooks. And then I take free music and I mix it up together. So you can hear right now a psychedelic take on a beginner's guide to stoicism, something to that degree. I don't know how listenable it is, but it's some really wild, weird music uh, mixed with a guy fully narrating five chapters of a book about stoicism, which shout out to Juan Ayala. He inspired me to even look into it. And I listened to some of the book and thought it was cool. So I thought, why not combine two things that I like and give the Patreons some bonus content. It's like a psychedelic library of a Alexandria, and you're about to hear Terrence McKenna with some music mixed in the background. Let me know what you think, and if you really like it, sign up on the Patreon. You'll find more stuff there. You'll also find the Illuminati Confirmed bonus show. We do an additional episode for every free episode of Illuminati Confirmed. There is a Patreon-only bonus episode that you can check out. If you support the show so far, we have way more Patreon shows than we do actual episodes and you even get some early releases, uh, some interviews that will be coming out this month, interviews with guys like Michael Wan uh, and Alex Stein, to name a few, Andre Mighty. So we've got a lot of cool interviews coming down the pike, got a lot of great stuff in store. Speaking of great stuff, it's spring, the weather's warming up, it's a good time to buy a new t-shirt, go over to the merch store, the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy merch store, you can find it at MyFamilyThinksI'mCrazy.com, go to the menu, click store, click merch, it's all very obvious, you'll find it, and if you use the promo code SUMMER, you get $3 off anything you pick, and the t-shirts are not pricey, you don't have to pay $30, $40 for some cool stuff. 
prices are pretty low i try to keep it between 20 and 30 dollars uh at that rate i make about half of what you're paying uh, the other half goes to teespring so who knows maybe one day when we're big shot podcast we'll have our own merch and it'll be 100 profit but until then we got teespring it's a good way to get some cool merch to you guys and i've ordered a couple shirts from the teespring store i enjoy wearing them they're comfortable they're basically the same thing you find any other t-shirt hanes they got all kinds of it's just you know hanes t-shirts the classic design and then they have some softer ones if you're you're into that but me i like the classic look the classic feel so i designed a bunch of cool t-shirts go check them out we also have some professional artists who have helped out and lended their skill if you're an artist if you're a musician get in touch with me i appreciate all the messages i'm going through my emails i'll definitely get back to you if you already sent an email but yeah if you have some talent that you think you can contribute to the show that is always welcome adam curry always says you can contribute your time talent or your treasure to his podcast and we kind of you know great graciously stole that from them i don't think they would mind at all and that's kind of what you're doing already you're you're giving us your time by listening this far into the episode making it to my rambling rant here and you get rewarded you get rewarded with some terrence mckenna stuff that you know it's it's out there it's on youtube but not always do you get a curated curated content that's what i want to do i want to bring some more curated content to you guys best way to do that is through the patreon and uh yeah so we'll give you a little teaser for that hit us up on telegram we got a nice community on telegram about 400 people it was cool on 420 we had exactly 420 people in the telegram look at that that's odd but anyways, not that anybody celebrates 420 anymore. I mean, come on, we're adults. But here we are. My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Outro. Great episode with Bill Ottman. Some technical stuff. You got to get on Minds. You got to get away from the major platforms. Don't listen to the show on YouTube. Don't listen to the show on Spotify. Still listen to the show. But just do yourself a favor. And educate yourself on the alternatives. There are plenty of different ways for you to connect with this podcast and all the other podcasts you enjoy. And I'm not asking you to, you know, just get a new app for my podcast. I mean, all of the podcasts that you like and listen to can be heard on these alternative platforms as well. So go check it out. If you're on Spotify and all that already, I get it. I appreciate you. I respect you for listening to the show wherever you find it but you know like i said do yourself a favor maybe consider it and uh and yeah telegram's kind of odd there's some things going on there but if you want to get it get in while the iron's hot before they close shop like every other social media platform is bound to do you know sign up there that's why we got to go with minds you know there's not a lot of people at least following me on minds yet but one day you know, we'll get there. Float. We've had a float uh, account for a long time. You can go on Float, F-L-O-T-E. That's a social media app that's alternative to the mainstream ones. What else? We just put a bunch of stuff on Rumble and Odyssey. So if you want to listen to the show on Rumble or Odyssey, check it out there. 
and uh yeah that does it folks thank you for being here and enjoy the moment well enjoy this lecture these are two sort of short clips from two different lectures they're only six minutes long each so enjoy this 12 minutes of terence mckenna wisdom and then after that enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now history of life well the weird thing about taking that position is that you can fall into positions where you find it where you find the answer and I sort of feel like that's the situation that the deep plant psychedelic community is in. It's a sense of having found the answer. And now the task changes. It's a completely different kind of spiritual universe that you live in after you've found the answer. Because the task becomes facing the answer facing it. You now have it. It's no more about disciplining the passions and, and all the... No, no. It's now been handed over. And so what are you going to do with it? And this, this is, uh, to my mind, in a way, uh, the, the problem and the challenge that we face globally as a species. You know, if the holy grail of the Western mind was the ability to release energy and form matter and to control nature, then this is now achieved. The goal, so now the whole context of the problem changes and the problem becomes changing our own minds, controlling the hand that controls the energy. And this is an entirely different kind of problem. It is not to be solved with the analytical knife plunged again and again into the body of nature. That whole approach is uh, seen to be, uh, at best, passé, at worst, bankrupt. So instead, it's about trying to edge up close to nature and feeling as individuals and as, as a society very peculiar about this. You know, it's like going back to your rape victim and pleading for their forgiveness. And yet, as I've tried to make sense of these psychedelic experiences, first in a general way, saying, you know, what are these molecules for? Or is that a proper question to ask? What are they doing for the plant? What are they doing for me? Uh, as I've tried to come to terms with what this might all be about, I've come more and more back to the notion that uh, it all lies in the plan, that our peculiar restlessness, which in modern circumstances has evolved into a rapacious appetite for addictive substances of all sorts. Our peculiar um, inappropriateness in all contexts, so we are not quite simply complex mammals, we are certainly not angels, and we just seem to occupy a very uncomfortable place in the hierarchy of, of uh, creation. 
I think this has to do with the fact that we are uh, the, the traumatized inheritors of a dysfunctional relationship, a relationship that grew dysfunctional uh, in the last 15 to 25,000 years. And what we call history is the fall out of a dynamic here and now feeling-toned relationship with our environment and into, you know, this anticipation of the future, worry of the, about the past, a basically ego. And I, I recently spoke in New York, and New York is a very uh, nuts and bolts kind of town. And uh, people there took issue with the notion that all of our problems can be boiled down to a single problem. If you trace the, the thread of every screw up back into the maze, it all comes back to a single issue, which is excess of ego. We all have excess of ego and uh, our entire situation, legalistic, psychological, religious, everything is about this, that it, it doesn't work, it's maladaptive, and yet we have it. And uh, why do we have it if it's maladaptive? If it doesn't promote human values, then how in the hell did it get started and what is it that's maintaining and sustaining it? Well, this is what I want to talk about uh, over the course of the weekend. Uh, when I pushed the analysis of what the psychedelic experience meant to the limits, I was surprised to discover that it left the domain of my personal relationship to the mystery. You know, what is it? What does it want for me? What is it trying to say? It, all that had to also make room for a, another issue, which is there's a political issue here. I think most people in this room, most people who have had the psychedelic experience will agree that the most profound, the most open-hearted, the most moving moments of their lives. Some of them have been tied in with those experiences. But we seem unable or unwilling or afraid to extrapolate that conclusion to the notion that this is a general panacea for society because we cannot conceive that our uh, that the, the solution to a spiritual dilemma could lie in matter. In other words, we ourselves have been effect, infected by the inside-outside matter-spirit dichotomies of the, of the dominator culture. But the notion that man, notice the gender thrust here, the notion that man could somehow bootstrap himself to Godhead without reference to nature seems to me highly peculiar and, and simply nothing more than an expression of hubris, pride, a belief, you know, that we can do it our way and alone.
something he used to say that never got quoted as much as turn on, tune in, drop out, but it seemed to me it, it was maybe better advice. And he used to say, find the others. Find the others. Well, you know, if you're a gay kid in Fargo, North Dakota, if you're a mescaline enthusiast in Winnipeg, if you're a student of alchemy and moose jaw, it, community is pretty much out of reach uh, for you. Well, it was until the coming of the internet. And the internet introduces everybody, no matter how weird, no matter how marginalized, no matter how peculiar, to the fact that there are others like you. There are others like you. Find the others. Make common cause. Uh, realize that uh, it's the deals you cut and the friends you make that determine where you're going to be standing when the flash hits. I mean, that's just obvious. And by... You see, the cultural game is a game of uniformitarianism. Cultural myths are that we are all alike. We Americans, each created equal. I mean, if you can believe that at an operational level, then I have some bridges I would like to sell you. Uh, it, it's a necessary truth to do political business, but it is not the truth. The truth is that you are not created equal with yourself from day to day. Leave alone any comparison with anybody else. You are not the person you were yesterday, nor the person you will be next week. What is an observation like that? Uh, what shadow does it cast in a world of all people are created equal? Uh, these are clashes of operating systems. There's an axiom in one, all created equal, and an axiom in the other, each divergent. These things can't be parsed. They can't be brought together. So culture plays a game of simplification. If you can make people think alike, they will buy alike, they will worship alike, and if, you know, politics demands it, they will kill alike. So. The uniformitarian agenda of culture is not an agenda friendly to you or to me or to any other individual. And if you start out from that point of view, you will soon realize that culture is not your friend. Now, this is not exactly PC to say what with everybody running around recovering their Latvian roots and their Irishness and their this, their whatever. Culture is not your friend. If you define yourself as a member of a group, of any group, know that that is a gross simplification and that everything about you that is interesting and unique is betrayed by defining yourself in that way. Uh, you know, most racism is practiced by people of the race that they are making racial judgments about. White people have 
far more racial opinions about white people than any other racial group because that's where they spend their time. These gross simplifications betray humanity, betray uniqueness, make sane politics impossible. What we have to do is get back to the reality of the flesh, the reality of the individual identity. This is how we come packaged. Uh, a race, that's an abstraction. These days you have to have three years of genetics under your belt to give a satisfactory definition of the word if we're really going to go to the math on it. I mean, it's an, it's, an, it's an abstraction of modern science. It's a notion so far removed from anything you and I come in contact with that we should just junk it. What we need to celebrate is the individual. It's, have you not noticed, I certainly have, that every historical change you can think of, in fact, any change you can think of, forget about human beings, any change in any system that you can think of is always ultimately traceable to one unit in the system undergoing a phase state change of some sort. No group, there are no group decisions. Those things come later. The genius of creativity and of initiation of activity always lies uh, with the individual. And it's very interesting that this is what the psychedelics address. They address us uniquely as individuals. You can sit next to somebody who drank from the same bottle you did and be perfectly confident that their experience has very little congruency uh, with your own.